Tonight I'd like to speak about the number of reflections, contemplations, which can be helpful as incentives, as inspiration and motivation for our practice. There are some very basic reflections in the Buddhist tradition that are known as the contemplations which transform the heart and the mind. And they're very helpful to do at the beginning of practice, of a practice period, but also to do, to reflect on every day, sometimes maybe as just a few thoughts, even quite a few times a day, the beginning of a sitting or a walking. One is the reflection on the precious situation of being a human being with the kind of interest and possibilities we have in practicing the Dharma. Another one is to reflect on change and impermanence of life. Another one is to think about, contemplate, reflect on cause and effect of our actions, of what we do. And another one is to think about the unsatisfactory, often painful nature of a not liberated state of being which is how I would translate samsara. The first one is to reflect about our situation as humans. Humans who are intelligent, and intelligent in a very specific way. We might or might not be very intelligent in certain specific fields, have a lot of knowledge or not, but what we all seem to have is a kind of intelligence that looks at life in a questioning way, looking at what this might be all about, looking at, um, looking more deeply than most people do, questioning the meaning, the sense of all this, looking at the possibility of um, finding the meaning, finding out what maybe the nature of all this is, what lies behind this existence. It's a kind of intelligence that is not so rare, but there's a lot of people who never question life in that way. And we all do, otherwise we wouldn't have come to a kind of spiritual practice that is very concerned with investigation. We have a special kind of interest. We have enough interest to really take unusual steps to pursue that kind of investigation about the meaning of life, about suffering and the possibilities of ending it and creating a life of happiness. We have so much interest that we have 
gone from home, we have used our vacation time, we have used considerable means and time to come to a place like this and for many of us to many other places before to do a rather strange thing which is not something people usually do different from going to the ocean different from a trip in the southwest of the United States different of trekking in Scotland coming to sit down sit and walk and be silent and look into our own hearts and minds. Very special kind of interest, which we do have and which is quite rare among humans. Now there are people on this earth who have this kind of interest and intelligence, but they don't have the means to do the kind of thing we can do here. Just uh, in the times of yesterday, there was a little notice on poverty. It said that I think 1.3 billion people on this earth live with less than a dollar a day, on less than a dollar a day. And I know personally, having been in India a lot, there are many, many millions or hundreds of millions who live with a lot less than a dollar a day, with five cents a day or two cents a day, starving, not having any material freedom, not being able to go where they want, not even being able to eat when they need to eat. We have an incredible situation, materially speaking. We're incredibly privileged. We can decide what kind of seminar we would like to go to. And I think there might be a few seminars which we can't make, but most of them we can make. And we can go there and we can arrange things. Sometimes it takes a lot to arrange it. Sometimes we really have to put in a lot of time, money, energy, sometimes less, but we can do it. In the retreats in Bokaya, there's not too often Indian people who come there. I think mostly because um, the way we speak, our, our language is kind of different from their way of thinking. It's a little difficult to understand that kind of psychological way of talking about things. But sometimes there are friends, Indian friends who come. And there's one particular man I know, I sometimes talk to him. And he would come every two, three years. And uh, for him to come for 10 days, it's so incredible what it would take from, for him in terms of getting the 10 days off from work, off from the family duties, you know, get the money to do the travels and all that. When he was there, he had such an incredible appreciation for being able to be there and that materially and just outwardly he was able to manage this. Most of us have it a lot easier and we can arrange things so we can practice the way we want. We have the outer freedom which again is not obvious. Here in the West we're really privileged again. If you just think of the situation in Tibet or China 
how difficult it must be there to practice one's religion. How incredibly many obstacles there are. How knowing of the hundreds of thousands of people who were deeply engaged in spiritual practice, who ended in prisons and concentration camps and got killed. It's a dangerous thing in parts of the world to do what we can do freely as much as we wish. Everything we need is available. Books, more than enough. You go into some of the spiritual bookshops. Can't make up your mind, at least I sometimes can't make up my mind where I should look at. There's so many things we can read about spirituality, we can listen to, we can go to seminars, there's innumerable programs we can choose from. And having come to one, there's this amazing support we get here. You think that everything is organized for us, people go out shopping, go out cooking for us, are arranging everything, the gardens, the house, everything is well kept. We have this fantastic place to be in. It's quite amazing. It's more than just being privileged. To have this kind of situation as human beings, it's extremely precious, it's extremely wonderful, and it's very, very rare if you compare to the six, seven billion people on this earth. Very few people have that kind of situation, and we have it. The Buddha gave an illustration on just how rare this is. And I used to think it's a kind of a nice image. Many of you have heard it many times. And uh, it's a little exaggerated. But the more, the older I get, and the more I see people in life, I think it's not even exaggerated. He says, imagine there's a blind turtle living at the bottom of the ocean, and there's a golden ring floating on the seven oceans, tossed here and there by the wind and the waves. And the blind turtle comes up to the surface once in a hundred years. As rare as it is for this turtle to come up with its head right through that golden ring, that rare is it to have the kind of situation we all have. If not that rare, at least it's very, very amazing. So can we appreciate that? Can we rejoice in that and really realize it is special and not take it for granted and not be sure that it's always going to be like that, and anyone could have it if they just want it. <coughs> this uh, Lama Kyongla Ratha Rinpoche sometimes comes to Switzerland. He comes all the way from Manhattan, where he lives. He said last time he was in Switzerland, having this precious human situation be compared to someone who comes from America to Switzerland and knows that since 
he or she is here now. They need and want to tour and visit all the important places and sites, Switzerland. I don't know if he went to the Matterhorn, but I know he went to several Dharma centers, which for him are the important places. And he said, one realizes that once back in the U.S., one won't have the opportunity to do that anymore. So, having that situation, it's important to take advantage. And exactly in that way, this precious human life is a unique and rare situation that needs to be used best. Needs to be used to develop and realize the important things in life. which is developing wisdom, developing kindness, compassion, discovering freedom. We have the situation and the opportunity. We are very lucky, very privileged. Yet our situation is very fragile. Everything in life is impermanent. Our life itself, ourselves, we're impermanent. The Buddha compared our lifespan to an arrow shot by a skillful archer. And as soon as the, stri- the string has been pulled, it doesn't wait, but quickly reaches its target. So also is it with the life of humans. We are going to its death as if we were in a one-way traffic road, not allowed to turn, not able to turn back. In a way, we're really just here only for a visit, if we look at it carefully. And if we dare to look at it and face the fact, we see it's fleeting. It's not very, there's no guarantee that any of it is going to last. In the last century, a tourist from the States visited the famous Polish rabbi Hafez Hayim. And the tourist was astonished to see that the rabbi's home was only a simple room with some books. And the only furniture was a table and a bench. He asked, Rabbi, where's your furniture? Where's yours? replied Hafez. Mine? he said. I'm only a visitor. I'm only a tourist here. So am I, said the rabbi. We get a tourist visa for this life. And depending on the embassy and the person there, we get some years, 50 or 80, sometimes a little more, sometimes a lot less. And then that's it. We have to pass on. Or to use Jim Morrison's words, no one gets out of here alive. Remember that one? Again, it's essential to recognize this fact clearly and to think about it over and over again, not just once and say, okay, I know, 
And the fact of change and impermanence is not only true for, only for ourselves, but for all things, for all beings, for all situations, all experiences, for everything. Now, natural tendency is to forget about it, even unconsciously at least to deny it, to at least not think about it. In the Mahabharata, the essential Hindu text, Indra asked Yudhishthira, what he thought was the most amazing thing with humans? And then Indra answers himself, the fact that they or we see people dying around us at all ages and still somehow in a very deep way believe that it will not happen to ourselves. Maybe it's unthinkable or something, but can you recognize that? Is that familiar? We know somehow, it's very obvious, and yet we don't. The Lama Gendin Rinpoche wrote, when we are not aware of impermanence, the fact of arising and disappearing of all things, we will stay bound in our desires and in the round of cyclic existence. We try to get and acquire things without realizing that they are unreal and impermanent. They change from moment to moment. Even when we finally manage to get the things we wish for, they won't stay long. This unawareness of impermanence leads to great frustration, partly because we are unable to influence and control circumstances and situations the way we would like to, partially or partly because it is impossible for us to keep them. We behave much like a child who is fascinated by a rainbow and runs after it. The child would like to own it and believe that it truly exists somewhere out there. Yet the child has no chance to catch the rainbow, let alone keep it, because the rainbow by nature is unreal, insubstantial. We believe that things, the world, the riches and the situations are real. We think that they are stable and that we can get and keep them. So we spend a lot of time and energy with this. But our wishful thinking and the actual nature of things are not in accord and thus the results are discontent, frustration and suffering. On the other hand, if and when we do practice properly, when we realize the changing and fleeting nature of life and of all things, a realistic and meaningful relationship with life becomes possible and wisdom and serenity will become our way of being. But only when we are quite fully aware of the preciousness of this life's opportunity and of its fragile, impermanent nature will we really practice seriously, impeccably and with a long, enduring mind.
Once we're motivated to really practice, it's important to understand the laws and workings of karma, the third of the reflections. Karma means action, the laws of our actions and their effects, their results, effects on ourselves mostly here. Basically, this law of karma says, wholesome actions, that's wise, helpful, life-fostering, life-protecting actions, of thought, of inner attitude, of speech, of outer activity, create pleasant and healing results for us, for ourselves. Just as the cart follows the oxen that pulls it, so do pleasant results follow wholesome actions, as the Buddha puts it. Unwholesome actions, as deluded, life-destroying, exploitive actions, of thought, inner attitude, speech, or outer activity, create painful results for ourselves. Just as the shadow follows the person who casts the shadow. It does all the time, immediately. There's no escape. In a way, it's much like when we plant the seeds. Like you'd plant seeds of sour lemons and you'd get a tree with sour lemons. Very obvious. While from mango seeds, or whatever these things are called, will again get sweet mangoes. It's a lawful process. It says that our actions have, do have an effect. And all our actions have effects. It means nothing happens in a vacuum. It's not that just because we don't see what thoughts do, they don't have an effect on the thinker. Each time we think something, it has an effect. And depending on the quality of the thought, the quality of the effect will be. Like a stone, if it's thrown into water, it ripples, ripples in all directions, and then ripples on in time. Of course our actions have effects on others, and I think that is a very important part. But in this karma part, what we look at is what they do to us, how much it matters how we act. We do them and we experience what they do to us. And I think when we're aware and sensitive, for example, we choose to lie for some reason or other, we can quite immediately feel what it does to ourselves. We need to produce a whole web of lies, just in case the person keeps on asking or, or you know, something goes a little different than planned and we have to explain more on it. Which means that we have to be on guard, which means that we can't really be too open and too relaxed in that situation. Doing that, holding that web of possible lies, we strengthen a tendency of uh, 
being dishonest. Each time we do that, we strengthen that tendency. When I go through British immigration, I have to be very careful to say, not say something that makes it obvious that I sort of work here for British immigration, I think. I never tried it really, but I'm quite sure that what I'm doing here is to work and I shouldn't. It starts even before I get on the plane. My sister lives in England and I do visit her sometimes. But not, not each time, often I don't. And that's my story. I can't stand it. It's so difficult. And they, don't, they ask all kinds of things. Maybe just one or two things. But somehow the whole thing has to give a, make sense, just in case. I used to be a photographer, so I used to say, they say, what do you work? And I used to be a photographer, so I'd just say, photography. And then this one person asked me, what camera do you use? And now it's like 25 years and I haven't had a camera for a long time. I have no clue what photographers use as a camera. So I sort of said, Nikon. And that was okay. But it was very clear that it's a complex thing and it involves somehow a big part of our being. And it's the same with all kinds of unwholesome actions. We take what doesn't belong to us. We're not straight with taxes, we're not straight with this or that. We have to sort of be prepared just in case that it could be found out. And the whole tendency is built up, and the whole way of holding ourselves in disharmony with reality and with others has to be built up and create strong tendencies. This is really karma and how it works not some kind of mysterious law that you read in New Age books or Buddhist texts about. It's how we function, what our ways of being do to us. So karma means action, but an action of thought, speech, and body. But it really refers to the motivation, the intention behind the act. So when we give away a gift, but really we do it out of some gain-seeking or, or self-serving intention, then that action obviously doesn't create the wholesome action of generosity, even though it was giving. What it creates is according to the intention that was behind the action. So also to be clear, we can't cheat. It's our motivation and intention that really counts. What all this means is really that we have, we have our future. We have our own future in our hands. We determine now what our inner makeup is going to be like in the future. We determine now what our tendencies are going to be like. We determine now how we react to situations. And that's really what we practice here. And that's why it is important and relevant whether we practice 
ill will, desire or delusion throughout the day, or whether we practice awareness, insight and kindness throughout the day. It matters whether we sleep and dream most of the time throughout our life, or or, or we practice waking up, being present, awakening. What we do in each and every moment has an effect. And uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or an unpleasant thing, but it's a fact. Not only has it an effect every now and then, you know, with the one or the other important action, but every action, every reaction, every attitude of every moment has an effect. So, you know, we might think, okay, you know, I'll do a, a good action, it's Sunday today, we do this really generous thing, and then we've practiced, we've done some spiritual thing. There's six more days in the week, and around 18 waking hours a day, 60 minutes an hour. Every moment's thought, speech and action create something. It's good to remember. Sometimes a little scary almost, but also it's inspiring because when we practice, all the generating of awareness, of kindness, of trying to see clearly, of patience, of endurance, of the million good qualities that develop even we're not even aware of all of them. It's very powerful, and it creates very positive karma all the time when we're at it. Trungpa Rinpoche was asked to explain karma and rebirth once, and he said, it's your bad habits. Of course, it's also our good habits, fortunately. But in a way, we call it tendency, tendencies. If we're not consciously practicing, it's our habits. As we all know by now. It's these tendencies, the habits which we keep on strengthening, which we then become. No wonder people's lives can feel so unfulfilled and unsatisfactory. If we wish for happiness, for joy, for serenity, but inside we keep on producing ill will, judgment, desire, demands, attachment, conceit, no wonder that life gets difficult. We are our tendencies on one level. That's why we need to practice. When we have fully recognized the infinite preciousness of our situation, when we realize how fleeting and fragile it is, when we see that our future really is in our own hands, and know that inner suffering or serenity depends mostly on ourselves, then we really look for a practice, for a path. We also look for a refuge, and that's the next reflection or contemplation I'd like to consider here. Seeing how much we create suffering 
for ourselves very often. We really begin to want out. A bit like people in a war-torn land where things aren't safe anymore, where there's a lot of potential and a lot of real suffering, where it's dangerous wherever you turn. We become like refugees, looking for a safe place, looking for a refuge from suffering, from torment. So we need to find out where such a refuge could be found. We need directions, I could say. Directions to a place or a situation, something we can trust. We need to know what it is we can trust. The traditional practice of taking refuge or going for refuge is exactly looking at this question. And if you see it in terms of looking at what it is, what gives us refuge away from the suffering which we create, and gives, in that sense, a refuge, I think it's actually a good name it has. I used to not like that name, and the more I think about it, the more it starts to make sense. It's the question of direction, of goal, or meaning we could give to our life. The question of what it is we can entrust ourselves to. Traditionally, the refuge is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Mm, I'll explain what this might mean for us. And many of you know all this quite well. I still really want to get into it. Because to me, it's not just some formula It is very often in in Tibetan tradition, it's something you repeat and you say, and it's meant to be a practice, but it can sort of be repeated and then that's over and you do the next thing. I feel it's a very essential part of Dharma, of spiritual practice. And I'll explain why with an example that I heard of. The late Achan Chah, who Unfortunately, I never met, but some of my friends and also of my teachers who have been his students, a great master of the Thai forest tradition. Apparently, he said that at some point earlier in his practice, doing forest monks practice in Thailand can be extremely demanding when they're out in the wild, going from village to village, begging for one meal a day. They eat what they get. Sometimes the areas are very poor, so they don't get a very rich meal. Sometimes they find very rich households or villages and they get huge meals. At noon, eating is over and there's nothing you carry. They carry with them. And they sit and walk, often in the woods, often in the jungles. There's all kinds of animals, not quite clear who, which ones are there. Apparently tigers, certainly snakes, ants. 
Also, it can be really hot, but it can also be freezing cold. I've been up in the north of Thailand, and it can be absolutely freezing. And there, a lot of three pieces of clothes. As he sat there, and he was really cold, and it was in the night, and he was very sick. And he was taking refuge. He was looking for a refuge, and it wasn't there. And it really made me think once more about refuge, about my own refuge. And I think, here's the question to us. When life gets really difficult, when it's at its worst, what will we do? Where will we turn? What is our real refuge? Will we pray to God? Will we despair? What will we do? I think it's an important question for all of us. I think it must be part of our practice. So let's look what Buddha, Dharma and Sangha could mean for us. For us who might perhaps not be Buddhist, might not have the slightest wish to be Buddhists, might be atheists or Christians or might be anything. Refuge in Buddha means that we trust in, that we take as a direction, awakening. Awakening from this kind of dream of not understanding things as they are. It's trusting in our own potential for liberation, freedom from what makes us or creates inner suffering for ourselves trusting in our Buddha nature. And maybe more practically, it's really awareness of the kind that rem remains undiluted, of the kind that remains unidentified, that is not caught up so much in all the sense impressions, in all the emotions, in all the thoughts that come and go, enticing us carrying us away, trying to get us lost in them, involved in them, and then caught in drama. That awareness. An awareness that remains at ease, amidst all of that, at rest in itself. That's really what we practice here what we develop here. So that's where a possible refuge could be. In a more conventional way, it means that our central concern in life is not our career, our, you call it promotion, not a house, not a home, not our car, not the shopping center, not even friends or family so much but really the wisdom, wisdom and understanding itself and the kindness, the love and the compassion that comes from it, that of course is for all beings. Refuge in Dharma could mean for us to trust in reality, in things as they really are, and trusting ourselves in the lawfulness of life, 
not so much in our habitual, deluded, often unrealistic notion of life, of how it is or how it should be. And we trust the teachings, any teachings, any ways and means which lead to understanding of life, which lead to a relationship of kindness and care with it. Perhaps we could also say we take refuge in our karma, in our deeds, as we've seen before. His Rumi, he says, three companions for you. Companion number one, what do you own? He doesn't even leave the house for a danger you might be in. He stays home. Number two, your good friend. At least he comes to your funeral. He stands at your graveside and speaks. No more. The third companion, how you act, your deeds. They go with you into death and will be with you to help. Take deep refuge in this companion beforehand. Buddha, Dharma. And we can entrust ourselves to our spiritual friends. Sangha. We trust that which is wholesome and expose ourselves to positive, to supportive influences. And I think there's a a reason why Sangha is one of the three refuges. Life is so tightly interwoven, we depend on others so closely in so many ways. And we are so easily influenced by others, by our surroundings, by society, by who we are with. And I think it's really unrealistic to believe that they won't condition us, they will not condition us. They will, they do. Every poster we see, every movie we watch, every written piece we read, in the newspaper, anywhere, on the box of the soap, or anywhere, it does influence us. Even when we're completely aware what it's trying to do, if it's a poster. We're quite present, we're quite sensitive to what's going on. Just the fact that this is what our world says all the time to us. It somehow influences us. I think it's good to face that part. And it's even much more so with people who are close to us, who are our friends, who are the people we're with. So it's very important that we choose very important that we choose who we're with, knowing that they will influence us. And as spiritually like-minded people, Sangha, those who have gone on such a path before us or ahead of us, those who go with us, they are best support. They really are a refuge. They remind us they support us, they create the same kind of atmosphere and energy, make us aware if we stray, and we can make them aware if they stray.
taking refuge. It's very helpful to reflect for a moment on this point of what refuge might mean for us, actually to feel out what it could mean for us, in a very conventional, practical way, and in a very deep, ultimate way. You can reflect about it daily for a few minutes. Also helpful to reflect about it before every undertaking going to do some important things or trips to reflect on it. Or whenever we need to make decisions, especially with important decisions, to reflect on refuge and then from there make decisions. It clarifies our life. It sets up clear values and it sets priorities. It can be a very strong, very helpful practice. So that these reflections, the preciousness, the fleetingness, the power of our action, is taking refuge, having a clear direction and priorities. Then we can look in our motivation at why we practice, why we do what we do in life. And obviously, having reflected on refuge, it is to be clear on what creates suffering for ourselves and to be clear on how we end creating the causes for suffering and live with serenity, with wisdom. But we can also begin to look at our decisions and actions, not just in the light of our personal interest, even spiritual personal interest, but begin to be motivated more also by interest in life as a whole, get a wider perspective, include all beings. As Ryokan said, Oh, if only my monk's robe were wide enough to gather all the suffering beings in this floating world. As we see our situation as humans, the preciousness, the impermanence, we see that all beings actually want happiness. Every, every body, every ant wants happiness, doesn't want to suffer. But also see that so often beings, we ourselves, do exactly that which brings us, which brings them suffering. We begin to feel compassion and more often can act from that place of an open heart, considering all of life, including ourselves, also including others. Now that doesn't mean that we need to try or to pretend that all we do comes out of some compassionate altruism. It's fine to do skillful, helpful things for ourselves. We need that. But we want to see what it means to keep an open heart, to keep a very wide perspective in our practice, a perspective which includes all of life, because this will make our practice wide, will make it expansive, will make it open, make it more powerful also. When we look at it that way, when we can open our scope, so to speak, it becomes a really beautiful and very inspiring attitude. Practice itself is more inspiring. Practice itself is easier because 
if right now I don't feel like there's enough reason to keep practicing, keep doing it. Eventually it makes a practice into bodhisattva practice. Sometimes one's own or dharma practice is compared to sun rays that shine into a room that is otherwise dark. It makes the whole room, even if it's just a small opening, a little window, it makes the whole room bright and light and everything in it can be seen clearly, all the colors and shapes. Bodhisattva practice is compared to the radiant sun itself. Its its light floods across the whole earth, floods the whole universe. In this way, our practice can become very wide, like the sun. The more open and the wider our motivation is, the more we include other beings, the more powerful the practice becomes. Practice of meditation, awareness, of insight into the impermanent, ingraspable nature of things. The practice of freedom from all suffering. And also the practice of generosity and of love and of compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.